Part 1 of Book 1, Chapter 8 of These Twain by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book 1, Chapter 8, Part 1. The Family at Home. 1. When Hilda knocked at the door of Auntie Hamp's house in King Street, a marvellously dirty and untidy servant answered to the summons, and a smell of greengage jam in the making surged out through the doorway into the street. The servant wore an apron of rough sacking. "'Is Miss Clayhanger in?' coldly asked Hilda, offended by the sight and the smell. The servant looked suspicious and mysterious. "'No, ma'am, or has gone out.' "'Mrs. Hamps, then?' "'Mrs. is up yon,' said the servant, jerking her tousled head back towards the stairs. "'Will you tell her I'm here?' The servant left the visitor on the doorstep, and with an elephantine movement of the knees, ran upstairs. Hilda walked into the passage towards the kitchen. On the kitchen fire was the brilliant copper pan sacred to preserving. Rows of earthenware and glass jars stood irregularly on the table. "'I'll be down,' said the brusque servant, returning, and glared open-mouthed. "'Shall I wait in the sitting-room?' The house, about seventy years old, was respectably situated in the better part of King Street, at the bottom of the slope near St Luke's Church. It had once been occupied by a dentist of a certain grandeur, and possessed a garden, of which, however, Auntie Hamps had made a wilderness. The old lady was magnificent, but her magnificence was limited to herself. She could be sublimely generous, gorgeously hospitable, but only upon special occasions. Her teas, of which a fresh and costly pineapple and wonderful confectionery and pickled salmon and silver plate never lacked, were renowned, but the general level of her existence was very mean. Her servants, of whom she had many, though never more than one at a time, were not only obliged to be Wesleyan Methodists and to attend the Sunday night service, and in the week to go to class meeting for the purpose of confessing sins and proving the power of Christ, they were obliged also to eat dripping instead of butter. The mistress sometimes ate dripping, if butter ran short or went up in price. She considered herself a tremendous housewife. She was a martyr to her housewifely ideals. Her private career was chiefly an endless struggle to keep the house clean, to get forward with the work. The house was always going to be clean, and never was, despite eternal soap, furniture polish, scrubbing, rubbing. Auntie Hamps never changed her frousy house dress for rich visiting attire, without the sad thought that she was leaving something undone. The servant never went to bed without hearing the discontented phrase, Well, we must do it tomorrow. Spring cleaning in that house lasted for six weeks. On days of hospitality, the effort to get the servant dressed for tea-time was simply desperate, and not always successful. Auntie Hamps had no sense of comfort and no sense of beauty. She was incapable of leaning back in a chair, and she regarded linoleum as one of the most satisfactory inventions of the modern age. She saved her carpets by means of patches of linoleum often stringy at the edges, and in some rooms there was more linoleum than anything else. In the way of renewals, she bought nothing but linoleum, unless some chapel bazaar forced her to purchase a satin cushion or a hand-painted grate screen. All her furniture was old, decrepit and ugly. It belonged to the worst Victorian period when every trace of the 18th century had disappeared. The abode was always oppressive. 
It was oppressive even amid hospitality, for then the mere profusion on the tables accused the rest of the interior, creating a feeling of discomfort. And moreover, Mrs. Hamps could not be hospitable naturally. She could be nothing and do nothing naturally. She could no more take off her hypocrisy than she could take off her skin. Her hospitality was altogether too ruthless. And to satisfy that ruthlessness, the guests had always to eat too much. She was so determined to demonstrate her hospitality to herself that she would never leave a guest alone until he had reached the bursting point. Hilda sat grimly in the threadbare sitting-room amid Morocco-bound photograph albums, oleographs and beady knick-knacks and sniffed the strong odour of jam. And in the violence of her revolt against that widespread, messy, idolatrous, eternal domesticity of which Auntie Hamps was a classic example, she protested that she would sooner buy the worst jam than make the best, and that she would never look under a table for dust, and that naught should induce her to do any housework after midday, and that she would abolish spring-cleaning utterly. The vast, mediocre respectability of the district weighed on her heart. She had been a mistress drudge in Brighton during a long portion of her adult life. She knew the very depths of domesticity, but at Brighton the eye could find large, rich, luxurious and sometimes beautiful things for its distraction. And there was the sea. In the Five Towns there was nothing. You might walk from one end of the Five Towns to the other and not see one object that gave a thrill, unless it was a pair of lovers. And when you went inside the houses you were no better off. You were even worse off because you came at once into contact with an ignoble race of slatternly imprisoned serfs driven by narrow-minded women who themselves were serfs with the mentality of serfs and the prodigious conceit of virtue. Talk to Auntie Hamps at home of lawn tennis or a musical evening and she would set you down as flighty and shift the conversation on to soaps or chapels. And there were hundreds of houses in the five towns into which no ideas save the ideas of Auntie Hamps had ever penetrated, and tens of hundreds of thousands of such homes all over the industrial districts of Staffordshire, Cheshire, Lancashire and Yorkshire. Homes were to keep bits of wood clean and to fulfil the ceremonies of pietism and to help the poor to help themselves was the highest good, the sole good. Hilda, in her mind, saw every house and shuddered. She turned for relief to the thought of her own house, and in a constructive spirit of rebellion she shaped instantaneously a conscious policy for it. Yes, she took oath that her house should at any rate be intelligent and agreeable before it was clean. She pictured Auntie Hamps gazing at a layer of dust in the Clayhanger Hall, and heard herself saying, Oh yes, Auntie, it's dust right enough. I keep it there on purpose, to remind me of something I want to remember. She looked round Auntie Hamps' sitting room, and revelled grimly in the monstrous catalogue of its mean ugliness. And then Auntie Hamps came in, splendidly and yet soberly attired in black, to face the world, with her upright, vigorous figure, her sparkling eye, and her admirable complexion, self-content, smiling hospitably, quite unconscious that she was dead, and that her era was dead, and that Hilda was not guiltless of the murder. This is nice of you, Hilda, it's quite an honour. And then archly, I'm making jam. So I see, said Hilda, meaning that so she smelt. I just looked in on the chance of seeing Maggie. Maggie went out about half an hour ago. 
Auntie Ham's expression had grown mysterious. Hilda thought, What's she hiding from me? Oh, well, it doesn't matter, said she. You're going out too, Auntie? I do wish I'd known you were coming, dear. Will you stay and have a cup of tea? No, no, I won't keep you. But it will be a pleasure, dear, Auntie Hamps protested warmly. No, no, thanks. I'll just walk along with you a little of the way. Which direction are you going? Auntie Hamps hesitated. She was in a dilemma. What is she hiding from me? thought Hilda. The truth is, said Auntie Hamps, I'm just popping over to Clara's. Well, I'll go with you, Auntie. Oh, do, exclaimed Mrs. Hamps almost passionately. Do, I'm sure Clara will be delighted. She added in a casual tone, Maggie's there. Thought Hilda, she evidently doesn't want me to go. After Mrs. Hamps had peered into the grand copper pan and most particularly instructed the servant, they set off. I shan't be easy in my mind until I get back, said Auntie Hamps. Unless you look after them all the time, they always forget to stir it. 2. When they turned into the gate of the Bembo's house, the front door was already open, and Clara, holding Rupert, her youngest, by the hand, stood smiling to receive them. Obviously they had been descried up the street from one of the bow windows. This small fact, strengthening in Hilda's mind the gradually formed notion that the Bembos were always lying in wait, and that their existence was a vast machination for getting the better of other people, enlivened her prejudice against her sister-in-law. Moreover, Clara was in one of her best dresses, and her glance had a peculiar self-conscious expression, partly guilty and partly cunning. Nevertheless, the fair fragility of Clara's face, with its wonderful skin, and her manner, at once girlish and maternal, of holding fast the child's hand, reacted considerably against Hilda's prejudice. Rupert was freshly all in white, stitched and embroidered with millions of plain and fancy stitches, he had had time neither to tear nor to stain. Only on his pip there was a spot of jam. His obese right arm was stretched straight upwards to attain the immense height of the hand of the protective giantess, his mother. And this reaching threw the whole balance of his little body over towards the left, and gave him a comical and wistful appearance. He was a pretty and yet sturdy child, with a look indicating a nice disposition, and he had recently been acquiring the marvellous gift of speech. Astounding how the infantile brain added word to word and phrase to phrase, and, as though there were not enough, actually invented delicious words and graphic droll phrases. Nobody could be surprised that he became at once the centre of greetings. His grand-aunt snatched him up, and without the slightest repugnance, he allowed the ancient woman to bury her nose in his face and neck. And then Hilda embraced him with not less pleasure, for the contact of his delicate flesh and his flushed, timid smile were exquisite. She wished for a moment that George was only two and a half again, and that she could bath him and wipe him and nurse him close. Clara's pride, though the visitors almost forgot to shake hands with her, was ecstatic. At length Rupert was safely on the step once more. He had made no remark whatever. Shyness prevented him from showing off his new marvellous gift, but his mother, gazing at him, said that in ordinary life he never stopped chattering. "'Come this way, will you?' said Clara effusively, and yet conspiratorially pointing to the drawing-room, which was to the left of the front door. From the dining-room, which was to the right of the front door, issued confused sound. "'Albert's here. I'm so glad you've come,' she added to Hilda. Auntie Hamps murmured warningly into Hilda's ear. 
It's Bert's birthday party. A fortnight earlier, Hilda had heard rumours of Bert's approaching birthday, his twelfth, and therefore a high solemnity, but she had very wrongly forgotten about it. I'm so glad you've come, Clara repeated in the drawing room. I was afraid you might be hurt. I thought I'd just bring you in here first and explain it all to you. Oh, bless me, explained Auntie Hamps, interrupting as she glanced round the drawing room. We are grand. Well, I never. We are grand. Do you like it? said Clara, blushing. Auntie Hampson replied told one of the major lies of her career. She said, with rapture, that she did like the new drawing-room suite. This suite was a proof, disagreeable to Auntie Hamps, that the world would never stand still. It quite ignored all the old Victorian ideals of furniture, and, in ignoring the past, it also ignored the future. Victorian furniture had always sought after immortality. In Bursley, there were thousands of Victorian chairs and tables that defied time and that nothing but an axe or a conflagration could destroy. But this new suite thought not of the morrow. It did not even pretend to think of the morrow. Nobody believed that it would last, and the owners of it simply forbore to reflect upon what it would be after a few years of family use. They contemplated with joy its first state of dainty Frenchness and were content therein whereas the old Victorians lived in the future, insofar as they truly lived at all, the Neo-Victorians lived careless in the present. The suite was of apparent rosewood with salmon-titted upholstery ending in pleats and bows. But white also entered considerably into the scheme, for enamel paint had just reached Bursley and was destined to become the rage. Among the items of the suite was a three-legged milking stool, in deal, covered with white enamel paint, heightened by salmon-titted bows of imitation silk. Society had recently been thunderstruck by the originality of putting a milking-stool in a drawing-room. Its quaintness appealed with tremendous force to nearly all hearts. Nearly every housemistress on seeing a milking-stool in a friend's drawing-room decided that she must have a milking-stool in her drawing-room and took measures to get one. Clara was among the earlier possessors, the pioneers. Ten years, five years before, Clara had appropriated the word aesthetic as a term of sneering abuse, with but a vague idea of its meaning. And now, such is the miraculous effect of time, she was caught up in the movement as it had ultimately spread to the five towns, a willing convert and captive, and nothing could exceed her scorn for that which once she had admired to the exclusion of all else. Into that mid-Victorian respectable house, situate in a rather old-fashioned street leading from Shawport Lane to the canal, and whose boast, even when inhabited by nonconformists, was that it overlooked the rectory garden, the new ideals of brightness, freshness, eccentricity, brittleness and impermanency had entered, and Auntie Hamps herself was intimidated by them. Hilda gave polite but perfunctory praise. Left alone, she might not have been averse from the new ideals in their more expensive forms, but the influence of Edwin had taught her to despise them. Edwin's tastes in furniture, imbibed from the Orgreaves, neglected the modern, and went even further back than earliest Victorian. Much of the ugliness bought by his father remained in the Clayhanger house, but all Edwin's own purchases were either antique, or, if new, careful imitations of the pre-Victorian. Had England been peopled by Edwin's, all original artists in furniture might have died of hunger. Yet he encouraged original literature, 
What, however, put Hilda against Clara's drawing room suite was not its style, nor its enamel, nor its frills, nor the obviously inferior quality of its varnish, but the mere fact that it had been exposed for sale in Nixon's shop window in Duck Bank, with the price marked. Hilda did not like this. Now Edwin might see an old weather glass in some frowsy second-hand shop at Hambridge or Turnhill, and from indecision might leave it in the second-hand shop for months, and then buy it and hang it up at home. And instantly it was somehow transformed into another weather glass, a superior and personal weather glass. But Clara's suite was not, for Hilda, thus transformed. Indeed, as she sat there in Clara's drawing room, she had the illusion of sitting in Nixon's shop. Further, Nixon had now got in his window another suite precisely like Clara's. It was astonishing to Hilda that Clara was not ashamed of the publicity and the wholesale reproduction of her suite. But she was not. On the contrary, she seemed to draw a mysterious satisfaction from the very fact that suites precisely similar to hers were to be found, or would soon be found, in unnumbered other drawing rooms. Nor did she mind that the price was notorious. And in the matter of the price, the phrase hire purchase flitted about in Hilda's brain. She felt sure that Albert Benbow had not paid cash to Nixon. She regarded the hire purchase system as unrespectable, if not immoral, and this opinion was one of the very few she shared with Auntie Hamps. Both ladies, in their hearts and in the security of their financial positions, blamed the Benbows for imprudence. Nobody, not even his wife, knew just how Albert stood, but many took leave to guess, and guessed unfavourably. Do sit down, said Clara, too urgently. She was so preoccupied that Hilda's indifference to her new furniture did not affect her. They all sat down, primly, in the pretty primness of the drawing-room, and Rupert leaned as if tired against his mother's fine skirt. Hilda, expectant, glanced vaguely about her. Auntie Hamps did the same. On the central table lay a dictionary of the English language, open and leaves downwards, and near it a piece of paper containing a long list of missing words in pencil. Auntie Hamps, as soon as her gaze fell on these objects, looked quickly away, as though she had by accident met the obscene. Clara caught the movement, flushed somewhat, and recovered herself. I'm so glad you've come, she repeated yet again to Hilda, with a sickly sweet smile. I did so want to explain to you how it was we didn't ask George. I was afraid you might be vexed. What an idea, Hilda murmured as naturally as she could, her nostrils twitching uneasily in the atmosphere of small feuds and misunderstandings which Clara breathed with such pleasure. She laughed, to reassure Clara, and also in enjoyment of the thought that for days Clara had pictured her as wondering sensitively why no invitation to the party had come for George, when in fact the party had never crossed her mind. She regretted that she had no gift for Bert, but decided to give him half a crown for his savings bank account, of which she had heard a lot. To tell you the truth, said Clara, launching herself, we've had a lot of trouble with Bert. Albert's been quite put about. It was only the day before yesterday Albert got out of him the truth about the night of your at-home, Hilda, when he ran away after he'd gone to bed. Albert said to him, I shan't whip you, and I shan't put you on bread and water. Only, if you don't tell me what you were doing that night, there'll be no birthday and no birthday party. That's all. So at last Bert gave in, and do you know what he was doing? Holding a prayer meeting with your George and that boy of Clowes next door to your house down Halton Street. Did you know? Hilda shook her head bravely. 
Officially, she did not know. Did you ever hear of such a thing? exclaimed Auntie Hamps. Yes, proceeded Clara, taking breath for a new start. And Bert's story is that they prayed for a penknife for your George, and it came. And then they prayed for a bicycle for our Bert, but the bicycle didn't come. And then Bert and George had a fearful quarrel, and George gave him the penknife, made him have it, and then said he'd never speak to him any more as long as he lived. At first, Albert was inclined to thrash Bert for telling lies and being irreverent, but in the end he came to the conclusion that at any rate Bert was telling what he thought to be the truth. And that Klaus boy is so little. Bert wanted his birthday party, of course, but he begged and prayed us not to ask George. So in the end we decided we'd better not, and we let him have his own way. That's all there is to it. So George has said nothing? Not a word, said Hilda. And the Klaus boy is so little, said Clara again. She went suddenly to the mantelpiece and picked up a penknife and offered it to Hilda. Here's the penknife. Of course Albert took it off him. Why? said Hilda ingenuously. But Clara detected satire and repelled it with a glance. It's not Edwin's penknife, I suppose, she queried in a severe tone. No, it isn't. I've never seen it before. Why? We were only thinking Edwin might have overheard the boys and thrown a knife over the wall. It would be just like Edwin, that would. Oh, no! The deceitful Hilda blew away such a possibility. I'm quite sure he didn't, said she, and added mischievously as she held out the penknife. I thought all you folks did believed in the efficacy of prayer. These simple words were never forgiven by Clara. The next moment, having restored the magic penknife to the mantelpiece and gathered up her infant, she was leading the way to the dining room. Come along, Rupee, my darling, said she. Rupee. Hilda privately imitated her, deriding the absurdity of the diminutive. "'If you ask me,' said Auntie Hamps, determined to, to save the honour of the family, "'it's that little Klaus monkey that is responsible. "'I've been thinking it over since you told me about it last night, Clara, "'and I feel almost sure it must have been that little Klaus monkey.' She was magnificent. She was no longer a housekeeper worried about the processes of jam-making, but a grandiose figure out in the world, a figure symbolic, upon whom had devolved the duty of keeping up appearances on behalf of all mankind. 3. The dining room had not yet begun to move with the times. It was rather a shabby apartment accustomed to daily ill-treatment, and its contents dated from different periods, the most ancient object of all stretching backwards in family history to the epoch of Albert's great-grandfather. This was an oak armchair, occupied usually by Albert, but on the present occasion by his son and heir, Bert. Bert, spectacled, was at the head of the table, and at the foot was his auntie Maggie in front of a tea tray. Down the side of the table were his sisters, thin Clara, fat Amy, and little Lucy, the first nearly as old as Bert, and his father. Two crumb-strewn plates showed that the mother and Rupert had left the meal to greet the visitors. And there were two other empty places, in a tiny vase in front of Amy was a solitary flower. The room was nearly full. It had an odour of cake, tea and children. Well, here we are, said Clara, entering with the guests and Rupert very cheerfully. Getting on all right? She gave Albert a glance which said, I have explained everything, but Hilda is a very peculiar creature. A1, Albert answered. Hello, all you aunties. Albert left the works early on purpose. Clara explained her husband's presence. He was a happy man. In early adolescence he had taken to Sunday schools as some youths take to vice. 
He loved to exert authority over children and experience had taught him all the principal dodges. Under the forms of benevolent autocracy, he could exercise a ruthless discipline upon youngsters. He was not at all ashamed of being left in charge of a tableful of children while his wife went forth to conduct diplomatic interviews. At the same time, he had his pride. Thus, he would express no surprise nor even pleasure at the presence of Hilda, his theory being that it ought to be taken as a matter of course. Indeed, he was preoccupied by the management of the meal, and he did not conceal the fact. He shook hands with the ladies in a perfunctory style, which seemed to say, Now the supreme matter is this birthday repast. I'm running it, and I'm running it very well. Slip inobtrusively into your places in the machine, and let me continue my work of direction. Nevertheless, he saw to it that all the children rose politely and saluted according to approved precedence. His eye was upon them. He attached importance to every little act in any series of little acts. If he cut the cake, he had the air of announcing to the world, This is a beautiful cake. I have carefully estimated the merits of this cake, and Mother has also carefully estimated them. We have, in fact, all come to a definite and favourable conclusion about this cake, namely, that it is a beautiful cake. I will now cut it. The operation of cutting it is a major operation. Watch me cut it, and then watch me distribute it. Wisdom and justice shall preside over the distribution. Even if he only passed the salt, he passed it as though he were passing extreme unction. Auntie Hamps, with apparent delight, adapted herself to his humour. She said she would squeeze in anywhere, and was soon engaged in finding perfection in everything that appertained to the Bembo family. Hilda, not being quite so intimate with the household, was installed with more ceremony. She could not keep out of her eye the idea that it was droll to see a stoutish, somewhat clay-dusted man neglecting his business in order to take charge of a birthday party of small children. And Albert, observing this, could not keep out of his eye the rebutting assertion that it was not in the least droll, but entirely proper and laudable. The first mention of birthday presents came from Auntie Hamps, who remarked with enthusiasm that Bert looked a regular little man in his beautiful new spectacles. Bert, glowering, gloomy, and yet proud, and above all self-conscious, grew even more self-conscious at this statement. Spectacles had been ordained for him by the oculists, and his parents had had the hardihood to offer him his first pair for a birthday present. They had so insisted on the beauty and originality of the scheme that Bert himself had almost come to believe that to get a pair of spectacles for a birthday present was a great thing in a boy's life. He was now wearing the spectacles for the first time. On the whole, gloom outbalanced pride in his demeanour, and Bert's mysterious soul, which had flabbergasted his father for about a week, peeped out sidelong occasionally through those spectacles in bitter criticism of the institution of parents. He ate industriously. Soon, Auntie Hamps, leaning over, wrapped half a sovereign down on his sticky plate. Everybody pretended to be overwhelmed, though nobody entitled to prophesy had expected less. Almost simultaneously with the ring of the gold on the plate, Clara said, Now what do you say? But Albert was judiciously benevolent. Leave him alone, mother. He'll say it all right. I'm sure he will, his mother agreed. And Bert said it, blushing and fingering the coin nervously. And Auntie Hamps sat like an antique goddess, bland, superb, morally immense. And even her dirty and broken fingernails detracted naught from her grandiosity. She might feed servants on dripping, but when the proper moment came, 
she could fling half-sovereigns about with anybody. And then, opening her purse, Hilda added five shillings to the half-sovereign, amid admiring exclamations sincere and insincere. Beside Auntie Hamp's gold, the two half-crowns cut a poor figure, and therefore Hilda, almost without discontinuing the gesture of largesse, said, That is from Uncle Edwin, and this, putting a florin and three shillings more to the treasure, is from Auntie Hilda. Somehow she was talking as the others talked, and she disliked herself for yielding to the spirit of the Bembo home, but she could not help it. The pervading spirit conquered everybody. She felt self-conscious, and Bert's self-consciousness was still further increased as the acclamations grew in power and sincerity. Though he experienced the mournful pride of rich possessions, he knew well that the money would be of no real value. His presents, all useful, save a bouquet of flowers from Rupert, were all useless to him. Thus the prim young Clara had been parentally guided to give him a comb. If all the combs in the world had been suddenly annihilated, Bert would not have cared, would indeed have rejoiced. And as to the spectacles, he would have preferred the prospect of total blindness in middle age to the compulsion of wearing them. Who can wonder that his father had not fathomed the mind of the strange creature? Albert gazed, rapt, at the beautiful sight of the plate. It reminded him pleasantly of a collection plate of the Sunday school anniversary sermons. In a moment, the conversation ran upon savings banks accounts. Each child had a savings bank account, and their riches were astounding. Rupert had an account and was getting interest at the rate of two and a half percent on six pounds ten shillings. The thriftiness of the elder children had reached amounts which might be mentioned with satisfaction even to the luxurious wife of the richest member of the family. Young Clara was the wealthiest of the band. I've got the most, haven't I, Fardy? she said with complacency. I've got more than Bert, haven't I? Nobody seemed to know how it was that she had surpassed Bert, who had had more birthdays and more Christmases. The inferiority of the eldest could not be attributed to dissipation or improvidence, for none of the children was allowed to suspend a cent. The savings bank devoured all and never rendered back. However, Bert was now creeping up, and his mother exhorted him to do his best in future. She then took the money from the plate and promised Bert for the morrow the treat of accompanying her to the post office in order to bury it. A bell rang within the house, and at once young Clara exclaimed, Oh, there's Flossie. Oh, my word, she is late, isn't she, Fardy? What a good thing we didn't wait for tea for her. Move up, miss. This to Lucy. People who are late must take the consequences, especially little girls, said Albert in reply. And presently Flossie entered, tripping, shrugging up her shoulders and throwing back her mane, and wonderfully innocent. This is Flossie, who is always late, Albert introduced her to Hilda. Am I really? said Flossie, in a very low, soft voice, with a bright and apparently frightened a smile. Dark Flossie was of Amy's age and supposed to be Amy's particular friend. She was the daughter of young Clara's music mistress. The little girl's prestige in the Bembo house was due to two causes. First, she was graceful and rather stylish in movement, qualities which none of the Bembo children had, though young Clara was pretty enough, and second, her mother had rather more pupils than she could comfortably handle, and indeed sometimes refused a pupil. Flossie, with her physical elegance, was like a foreigner among the Bembos. She had a precocious demeanour. She shook hands and embraced like a woman, and she gave her birthday gift to Bert 
as if she were distributing a prize. It was a lead pencil with a patent sharpener. Bert would have preferred a bicycle, but the patent sharpener made an oasis in his day. His father pointed out to him that, as the pencil was already sharpened, he could not at present use the sharpener. Amy thereupon furtively passed him the stump of a pencil to operate upon, and then his mother told him that he had better postpone his first sharpening until he got into the garden, where bits of wood would not be untidy. Flossie carefully settled her very short white skirts on a chair, smiling all the time, and inquired about two brothers whom she had been told were to be among the guests. Albert informed her with solemnity that these two brothers were both down with measles, and that Auntie Hamps and Auntie Hilda had come to make up for their absence. "'Poor things!' murmured Flossie sympathetically. Hilda laughed, and Flossie, screwing up her eyes and shrugging up her shoulders, laughed too, as if saying, "'You and I alone understand me.' "'What a pretty flower!' Flossie exclaimed in her low, soft voice, indicating the flower in the vase in front of Amy. "'There's half a crumb left,' said Albert, passing the cake plate to Flossie carefully. We thought we'd better keep it for you, though we don't reckon to keep anything for little girls that come late. Amy, whispered her mother, leaning towards the fat girl, wouldn't it be nice of you to give your flower to Flossie? Amy started. I don't want to, she whispered back, flushing. The flower was a gift to Amy from Bert, out of the birthday bunch presented to him by Rupert. Mysterious relations existed between Bert and the benignant, acquiescent Amy. Oh, Amy! her mother protested, still whispering, but shocked. Tears came into Amy's eyes. These tears Amy at length wiped away, and, straightening her face, offered the flower with stiff, outstretched arm to her friend Flossie, and Flossie smilingly accepted it. "'It is kind of you, you darling,' said Flossie, and stuck the flower in an interstice of her embroidered pinafore. Amy, gravely lacking in self-control, began to whimper again. "'That's my good little girl,' muttered Clara to her, exhibiting pride in her daughter's victory over self, and rubbed the child's eyes with her handkerchief. The parents were continually thus bringing up their children. Hilda pressed her lips together. Immediately afterwards it was noticed that Flossie was no longer eating. "'I've had quite enough, thank you,' said she, in answer to expostulations. "'No jam, even if you've not finished your tea.' "'I've had quite enough, thank you.' said she, and folded up her napkin. "'Please, Father, can we go and play in the garden now?' Bert asked. Albert looked at his wife. "'Yes, I think they might,' said Clara. "'Go and play nicely.' They all rose. "'Now, quietly, quietly,' Albert warned them. And they went from the room, quietly, each in his own fashion. Flossie, like a modest Tsarina, young Clara full of virtue and holding Rupert by the hand, Amy, lumpily, Tiny Lucy as one who had too soon been robbed of the privilege of being the youngest, and Bert in the rear, like a criminal who is observed in a suspicious act. And Albert blew out wind, as if getting rid of a great weight. End of Book One, Chapter Eight, Part One